Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, I'm Andy Zaltzman. Welcome to the Bugle's official review of 2022, part two. In this episode, we'll hear from Bugler's old and new on the two big Lizzies of the year, Truss and whatever the other one's actual surname was, as well as Global Chaos, Coos and a cameo from John Oliver to mark our anniversary. But before that, time for ads. But only kidding, this show has no ads, because you fund all that we do. Please continue to support us at thebuglepodcast.com. Now let's head to July. I was with Nish Kumar and Chris Haddison as the world began shedding leaders at a truly alarming pace. Top story this week, uh, Sri Lanka news. And Well, if there's one hot fashion trend this year, it's not the return of the floral pantaloon or the diaphanous cassock or the glockenspiel hat. It's the resigning national leader. Uh, last week, we reported exclusively on Boris Johnson's non-tearful collision with the immovable bulwark of his own infinite shitness. And more... <laughs> On that unedifying race to step into his rotting shoes later. Uh, This week, uh, we've seen the Prime Minister of Italy, Mario Draghi, trying to resign after the collapse of his coalition government, but having the President of Italy refusing to accept his resignation, saying, well, everyone, please stop f***ing resigning. Um, (laughs) And in Sri Lanka, uh, President uh, Rajapaksa has suffered the indignity of the people of Sri Lanka taking a dip in his own private swimming pool, an embarrassment so scarring that he had no choice but to flee the country in disgrace and then uh, resign. Um, I mean, in many ways, it's a classic uh, a classic tale, isn't it? Uh, got it by Rajapaksa's uh, downfall. Uh, allegations of spectacular levels of corruption, uh, intimidation, cronyism, parasitism, power-grabbing, large-scale political and economic mismanagement, crackdowns on dissenting voices, <laughs> playing on deep-seated social and <laughs> ethnic divisions. When will someone burn copies of that playbook? But really, it comes down to the fact that Everyone took a dip in his private swimming pool, and there's no recovering from that, is there? There is no recovering from that as a leader. They didn't just take a dip in his swimming pool; they petted his animals. <laughs> <laughs> they pet. They pet this. I think this has to be the most adorable coup in human history. <laughs> <laughs> it's in- that, that is a that is not a very hotly contested. <laughs> topic, <I think. laughs> There is a, there is a, it's like you say Bolt sprint records. There is a huge jump off from first <laughs> place to second place. It, they, they swam in his pool. They petted his dogs. Several of the children, because there were children involved. That's how wholesome yeah. this coup was. It was like a family day out to Thorpe Park. It was unbelievable. <laughs> they petted his dogs and several of the children played his piano. It's an utterly, utterly charming coup. And yet somehow, even all the more damning for it, having your children play someone's piano is like mafia levels of intimidation. <laughs> I, I quite liked that, that, that people were just... That there was a woman who was being interviewed who brought her kids to the capital for the day, <laughs> specifically for the revolution. That's really good parenting. I just want them to have these experiences while they're young. So we're going to overthrow the government and then we're going to go to the aquarium. It's <laughs> superb. It, it, it is, in almost every extent, the polar opposite of the January the 6th riots in America. Yeah. It is the absolute polar opposite. It, it really is... It really is very wholesome. Nobody was rubbing shit on the walls or taking cable ties in to tie up democratically elected representatives. This was a good old-fashioned, corrupt, dick, borderline dictator being removed from office and then everyone having a nice swim. <laughs> I, I, I sort of feel like we would never be able to do that sort of thing in this in this country because those coups dicker flare up there are. <laughs> well, you see, you say that in this, but I, I think it's the, I think it, the problem for us is the palace. 
We would never get very far invading a palace. They just have to put up a red rope strung between two brass stanchions and we go, we can't go past that. <laughs> That's it. And it's, it's too easy for the police to trap people in there because the only way out is through the gift shop. That is why it has never really happened in this country. Not since, you know, that time. <laughs> Not since Cromwell got the hump. Not since Cromwell got the hump. Um, the uh, Prime Minister, Ranil Wickremesinghe, is uh, now, uh, following uh, Rajapaksa's resignation, the acting president. Um, <laughs> he was in his sixth stint as Prime Minister, which is quite a lot of stints, as, as I shouldn't say that at this point in Boris Johnson's political career. He might see that as a, uh, as a goal. Um, uh, uh, but he's also facing calls for his resignation, and indeed protesters uh, set fire to his house, um, which was... Um, <laughs> Not a good sign if you are then becoming acting acting president. A new president is due to be uh, to be uh, elected elected soon. I mean, it's uh, it all came as a result of a sort of huge economic crisis. Uh, you know, inflation, power cuts, healthcare collapsing due to uh, lack of medicines, transport systems uh, failing, fuel sales uh, restricted. I mean, in, in in some ways, you might see it as looking into the future, uh, depending on where in the world uh, you are. But um, it, it was a very I mean, kind of broadly a, a kind of tragic story of a, of a of a country that has so much going for it. And uh, <laughs> apart from the people who've been in charge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we saw also was the classic fleeing of a bad leader because Rajapaksa went to the Maldives and then Singapore this week. But it's not thought to be his final destination, Andy. So where might he go? I've put together a little guide uh, <laughs> to some favourite haunts you'll find in the search histories of ex-tyrants. Been deposed? Got beef? Then why not come to Argentina? You'll fit right in. <laughs> World champion handball playing nation and noted geopolitical grudge holder Argentina is a fabulous choice for any despot fleeing from a baying mob with nothing more than the clothes they stand up in and a private plane filled with half the National Reserve. Extradition treaty? They don't even have a regular addition treaty, let alone an extra one. Fun activities include spot the kindly old German gentleman before the kidnap squad from Mossad does, having a T-bone steak induced myocardial infarction and why not join in the traditional Argentinian pastime of staring furiously towards the Falkland Islands or as they're known in Argentina the Falkland Islands <laughs> Dubai <laughs> Dubai oh. whether it's British expats in spite, who in spite of being in the middle of Arabia will only buy hummus from the M&S food shop that you're after or a sandy vagina air conditioning capital of the known world Dubai is the place for you you practically can't walk down the street here without bumping into someone who's been chased out of their own country so you'll always have plenty to talk about whether it's former <laughs> Afghan president Ashraf Ghani or the sometime king of Spain Juan Carlos or just some ex-city trader from Chelsea who retired at 40 and now spends his life drinking from noon and wanking himself to sleep <laughs> Dubai is absolutely lousy with people who regret their life choices in extreme but entirely tasteless luxury fun activities include dune surfing thinking that having a really tall building is important and not talking about ongoing human rights abuses <laughs> la belle France zut alors les français adorent le dictateur that's right as surprising as it may seem the home of liberté and égalité has often extended the hand of fraternity to the kind of people who just a few short centuries previously they'd have been persuading to have a closer look at the fabulous new head removing device they just invented <laughs> France has played host to so many ex-despots that at one point in the early 21st century an estimated 5% of the population were former African dictators. What draws them there? Perhaps it's the weather, perhaps it's the food or perhaps it's just one of the few places in the world where you don't have to explain how to spell coup d'etat 
<laughs> Fun activities include using gold bullion to mitigate highly ingrained institutionalised racism, booing during the Bastille Day Parade, and trying to make girls think you're interesting by smoking gulwars. And finally, <laughs> what's got 120 million thumbs, a queen the size of Paddington Bear, and an unquenchable thirst for dirty money? Us guys. That's right. Have you screwed a starving population out of what was rightfully theirs? Then Knightsbridge is the place for you. You don't have to be a dodgily elected ex-leader of a country to be welcomed here with open arms, just so long as you've got a boat big enough to land a helicopter on and a brolly. Fun activities include owning football teams, owning newspapers, and owning the Tory party. <laughs> well, we could roll out the full Pinochet package for you. Yeah. <laughs> we, we got game. <laughs> That was Bugle issue 4,236 there. Now we move forward to the start of September and the arrival of a brand new, fresh, bouncing, bubbly Prime Minister, Liz Truss, a figure surely set to reign for years and years, assuming those years are on a tiny, as yet undiscovered planet that circles the sun at frankly ridiculous speed. I was joined by Josh Gondelman and Nish Kumar. Top story this week. The United Kingdom will have a new Prime Minister tomorrow. As we record, tomorrow is Tuesday, today is Monday. Liz Truss, the former Foreign Secretary, until she gave up to campaign to be Prime Minister a couple of months ago, since when we've had no Prime Minister or Foreign Secretary, is to be the new leader of this country. Um, uh, she has uh, is walking into power after being voted in by 81,000 out of 170-odd thousand <laughs> Conservative members. Less than half of the Tory membership voted for her. Uh, Sunak got to just over 60,000 votes. So 57.4% of the 82% of the quarter of a percent of the population <laughs> who were eligible to vote voted for trust. It's around about an eighth of 1% of the people of this country have elected our new Prime Minister, Nish. I know you're a massive democracy fan. You must have really enjoyed the, the stats side huge. of this. Huge. And else. this is a huge day in the United Kingdom's history. Smoke is billowing out of the Queen's anus, and that can mean one thing and one thing alone. We have a new Prime Minister. Uh, it has been a contest that began uh, uh, in early July, and it felt like it's gone on for 750,000 years. But now uh, Liz Truss uh, has won uh, in a contest between her and Rishi Sunak. And the whole time people have been determining whether this contest should be deemed the lesser of two evils. It's more like a... Listen, it's more like a contest to determine Britain's neatest paedophile. It's not really the lesser of two evils. It's simply an unpleasant choice that we were forced to make and most of us didn't get a say in it. Uh, Liz Truss won, uh, as you say, Andy, with uh, around 81,000 votes. Uh, it's not a huge uh, majority. And the, the margin of victory was actually even narrower than had been predicted uh, early on in the campaign. Liz Truss was supposed to walk uh, this through without any problems whatsoever. As it is, she's won by 57 to 42%. And the reason that that margin has narrowed uh, is simply her personality, her dreadful, <laughs> dreadful personality. A day before the results were announced, uh, opinion polling uh, suggested that 49% of people who voted Conservative in 2019 believed she looked like a Prime Minister in waiting in the beginning of August. This dropped to just 31% by the 30th <laughs> of August. Liz Truss is like a biopic of Malcolm X starring Jim Carrey in the lead role. The more you see of it, the worse it gets. And crucially, it was pretty <laughs> 
fucking bad to begin with. <laughs> but I mean, this is it's quite extraordinary, really. So we've what we've, we've had this, this this leadership election. Uh, the voting process took was it almost two months yes. since voting since voting opened, and and these are. 170,000 of the most committed Tories in the universe. They are the members of the Conservative Party. And still, one in six of them couldn't be asked to vote. (laughs) They've had almost two months. This is not like having to vote on a specific day in an election. They've had weeks and weeks to do it. And still... Only 82% of people <laughs> voted. So less than half of the Toryist Tories wanted Truss as as Prime Minister. Last night, um, Josh, I was uh, lying in bed, mm-hmm. very excited about the prospect of, um, of Boris Johnson no longer being Prime Minister mm-hmm. and then sick to my very core at the prospect of Liz Truss being my Prime Minister. Sure. <laughs> uh, instead, and there was an enormous thunderstorm. Yeah, one... <laughs> mega rumble of thunder rattled our windows as the skies cracked with the whip of dune and i thought surely this is a divine signal that appointing liz truss as prime minister has displeased all of the various deities <laughs> who rule our universe and and that, but to be fair that did follow an even bigger thunderclap which i think was all of those deities applauding the uk for ditching boris johnson so i mean it's I mean, how I mean, in America, obviously, you've had political upheavals. Are people still interpreting the weather for divine signals? Um, Now we're having more and more extreme weather events. I will say, uh, you had an interminable feeling election decided by, like, a few widely skewed votes and low turnout. Congratulations, you just elected a leader American style. (laughs) I hope that was fun. That's kind of what we have going on. I do feel like weather-wise, right, it is pretty ominous. I think prime minister is not like a, it's too lofty a title at this point for what these people are. <laughs> I Especially because it feels like just with the apocalyptic nature of everything, we're closing in on the Omega minister. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's on the horizon. I will say you had two months with like no prime minister. Boris Johnson was on the way out. They hadn't decided yet. I think maybe you just roll that forward. Ghost ride the whip. No prime Prime <laughs> I think if there if there was a general election now and absolutely no government or prime minister at all was an option, I think that would, particularly under a first past the post system, walk to victory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She arrives in office in what can only be described as an absolute mother of an intro um <laughs> there are there are real problems brewing uh, this br- this strikes brewing uh, the tuc congress which is one of the biggest meetings of trade unions in this country is going to happen uh, it's going to start next sunday uh, liz truss has already said that she promises to legislate within 30 days to restrict key workers legal rights to strike so already that's starting off on a bad note. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> nothing screams, I believe in democracy, more than we will restrict your ability to go on strike. <laughs> um, there's obviously the concerns about the situation in Ukraine. There's unlikely to be any shift in policy for that. There's no suggestion that Liz Truss is going to deviate from Boris Johnson's policy of continuing to provide weapons for Ukraine. Uh, with Brexit, there is still uh, the, uh, the never-ending sh- the, the never-ending shit of Brexit 
continues to just pour forth from the anus of this country. Uh, the, uh, there's a debate coming up about the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which Liz Truss actually ha- managed to get through the House of Commons, but it's likely to get stuck in the House of Lords. So it's possible that uh, by the 15th of September, she'll have triggered Article 16, which would suspend parts of the Northern Ireland Agreement, which is a, a bad idea on so many deep levels. Uh, the biggest problem that she faced. Oh, and also the global pandemic. It's something about global pandemic. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that that's uh, someone f***ed about. I don't know what's going on with that. But uh, <laughs> the biggest problem that she faces is uh, the energy crisis um, with people's energy bills being about to double and in some cases quadruple. Businesses are facing closures. Um, and thus far, this it's the most immediate crisis facing the country. And thus far, Liz Truss has announced absolutely all uh, to do with the energy <laughs> crisis apart from her plan which i think she's just released which is uh, her plan is to advise households to generate heat by huddling together whilst jacking it to pictures of margaret thatcher <laughs> <laughs> family family, family. <laughs> he was um, talking about families <laughs> <laughs> i was talking about families jacking it together andy thank you <laughs> That was Bugle issue 4,239. Now, the news happened fast this year, and we move on one whole episode now, and the final departure of Britain's own head of state. I was joined by Tiff Stevenson and Anuvab Pal to document the reaction to the end of the Elizabethan II era. A special uh, interview this week with uh, Sir Strangeford's Pumperty Grafton, the Royal Crown Sergeant Trainser of the Noggin since 1947, who gives the Bugle his exclusive tips on how to strengthen your neck muscles to cope with a life of 24-7, 365 crown wearing, uh, plus added tips on how to sleep without your crown falling off, because uh, I know uh, the New King is an avid listener of this show. Also, uh, we have some of the history of the uh, neck exercises performed by monarchs to hone their crown supporting musculature. Here's a little snippet uh, from that interview. Uh, well, Andy, the average crown weighs, of course, 120 kilograms. Uh, Queen Victoria, by the midpoint of her reign, had a neck like an absolute wildebeest. It was quite <laughs> strikingly beautiful in a certain light, according to uh, Benjamin uh, Disraeli. That came, of course, from years of balancing a seal on her head for an hour every morning before breakfast, um, uh, on the advice of my predecessor, the Earl of Buckyshire. This, of course, was the origin of the kipper as a breakfast food. Uh, it, it was something that both the seal and uh, Her Majesty Queen Victoria were prepared to eat whilst they discussed affairs of state. And going further back, the trend for elaborate neck ruffs during the uh, reign of the first Queen Elizabeth in the 16th century originated, of course, from her extraordinarily large royal neckerature, seen at its most potent, of course, when she headed a flaming cannonball off the White Cliffs of Dover directly into the Spanish flagship El Botrigain in 1588 at turning points in the defeat of the Armada. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that the full interview is uh, is in the bin. <laughs> Andy, can I just say, this is yeah. my first time encountering royal commentators. And oh, of yes. Of course, they were out in, in all their glory. I think they had been waiting for years and years. This was their sort of major test match, if you will. And I think after day four, it was really difficult for them to say something insightful. Uh, yes. And not repeat day four. Any- day four. <laughs> day four. <laughs> Minute thirty-five. Definitely. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, better. Yeah. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of my favourites, I think, by day six was a gentleman saying, "It was a delight to meet her, and she was wonderful." And he'd said this a few times, and then the the main guy said, "Well, 
is there anything you have to add? And he said, well, she asked me, is that a door? And I said, yes, ma'am. That was the kind and warm person she was. <laughs> and I think, I think that's when anecdotes have reached their complete nadir. Oh, you know, you have to... I don't know. I think we can compete with that. There was a... The Corgis had no idea of her status. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, and there was also the Queen's image in a cloud. Let's not forget the Queen's... We've seen the Queen's image in... Next you'll be telling me she's on stamps. This is just ridiculous. <laughs> You're seeing her on stamps. <laughs> You're seeing her on coins. She's everywhere. Um, that was within. That was in the first day. That was like the first day of commentary on it. But actually, on the first day, like on Monday, just gone. I actually got my period out of respect for the Queen. It's what right. she would have wanted. Um, well, I do actually call it trooping the colour. So that. <laughs> well, I mean, it was it was interesting, wasn't it? That the things that were announced as being out of respect. Uh, for the Queen and we saw this particularly in sport so I mentioned that the test match I was at on day one so the second day was uh, was cancelled and then they resumed the game on the scheduled third day and they announced that they were continuing with the cricket as a mark of uh, respect for, for the Queen but um, you know to, to, to be able to pay tribute and there was a kind of moving minute silence and various uh, other things at the at the ground and you know, Prince Philip was a, a big cricket fan and supporter of various cricketing charities in in his time but football cancelled all of its games out of respect for the queen um and it did i mean it did and then boxing was cancelled uh, but rugby carried on i don't know what you know what that says about the relative levels and styles of violence that were and were not respects uh, <laughs> respects for the queen then on the resumption of football liverpool scored an injury time winner to beat dutch champions ajax as a mark of respect to the queen whilst <laughs> tottenham hotspur lost to sporting lisbon also as a mark of respect <laughs> to the queen and, and, and chris i know as a, as a tottenham hotspur fan you know we, we look upon the queen as, a, as an icon of stability and continuity and i guess spurs's defeat to lisbon was a, a kind of a gesture that that the queen you know exemplified the fact that some things in this country must never change some traditions are inviolable and, and spurs losing important football matches is is, is one of them is that is that, is that how you interpreted it I mean, I was actually blaming Prince Charles for our defeat. I was right. like, for once, I've got a new target for this. <laughs> sorry, sorry, King Charles. Yep. Um, can I please get off this island? <laughs> um, you were at the cricket, Andy, surely. Surely when you were at the cricket and they announced it, did one person go, well, she had a good innings? Um, <laughs> well, you know, there was a kind of genuine outpouring of emotion around the country as well as a lot of kind of performating performative excessive respect paying various you know tv journalists making sure they were filmed whilst paying their respects um and and some really weird things happened as well center parks the hol holiday parks in, in, uh, they incurred the fury of their customers by announcing they would be closing their venues on the day of the funeral and telling the people who were staying there to stay somewhere else which was not ideal given that centre parks as a holiday destination is already the somewhere else that people were staying <laughs> um, they then they then backtracked appropriately because you know what we know about her majesty the queen is she loved having somewhere to stay and <laughs> ideally with a water slide in October, the Bugle turned 15. In the early days, I co-hosted the show with one of the most promising comedians to come out of the Midlands region of England for many years, John Oliver. He returned for one week this year to toast our longevity and answer your questions. Hello, Andy. 
Hello, Buglers. <laughs> it, what an honour it was to share the bugle with you for eight years, Andy. It was like being on an international space station. What? <laughs> but on the ground. And in two different countries. Honestly, right. that yeah. metaphor fell apart instantly. <laughs> right. But it's, it's still one of the most moving things anyone's ever said to me, John. So <laughs> I, I pre- it was just a sense of being in a very confined space. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> just the remorseless futility and claustrophobia. Yeah, yeah the kind of yes. aggressive silence occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that made you feel like you were truly alone in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a glorious eight years. Well, I mean, I, th- I like to think that that probably mirrored the aggressive silence we had at, for example, our Edinburgh preview in York. Or... Uh, but I believe so. Yeah. I think I've had a lasting appreciation for the different kinds of silence due to the work <laughs> that we were able to do live together. <laughs> I think we can, al- we can always tell this is an interested audience, this is an apathetic audience, this is a very angry audience which is about to vocalise it. <laughs> and, and in the case in York, of... I believe you had, you had three, all three happening at once in different, on different tables in York, I think. <laughs> uh, and and un- unforgettably, of course, the uh, space in Docklands... Yes. Uh, 2004, the night England lost to Portugal on penalties in the European Championship. Yes. That was a silence very much caused by no one else being left in the room. That's right. After the entire audience had walked out. What it was, it was the most natural sound that that room has ever produced. It was just the walls uh, that were emitting their kind of silence as, yeah. our, as our voices were echoed back <laughs> from the flat surfaces in that room. Voices at that point saying, shall we still continue? (laughs) (laughs) At what point are we just entertaining each other? And, of course, the answer to that was at all points. (laughs) And that was very much the joy of podcasting, was it gave a vehicle for people who could only entertain each other. Exactly. um, It it removed the the problem contextualisation that an audience could provide. Uh, so, so that was 2004. The yes. Bugle came into being, if I've done my maths rightly, 2022 minus 15, in 2007. So I'll let's go back in that. time. Yeah, yeah. let's uh, leave the stats to me, John. Let's yeah. go back in time to, uh, to 2007. Now, at that point, you had already left the United Kingdom to try and crack it as a goaltender in the NHL, if I remember Indeed. correctly. Indeed, that was the dream, yeah. <laughs> I was about to host the hit 12th series of Bar Mitzvah or Bust on uh, on the BBC. So you know our careers were in different positions than than, than what what they are what they are now. I mean what yeah. uh, what, what do you remember of, of uh, well of your early time in America those early bugle bugle episodes. Let's not gloss over the fact that I don't think I can make it in the NHL now. I think the Bar Mitzvah <laughs> or Bust dream there's no need for that to be dead. <laughs> That's as good an idea now as it was then, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, sorry, what was the question? I was so hung up on bar mitzvah or bus, <laughs> and so, just what what potentially that game show, if it is a game show, I don't know how you've envisioned it, <laughs> would involve reality show game show. Either you <laughs> basically you have your bar mitzvah or you renounce Judaism. I don't know what the bus <laughs> counts as in there. It, it's a good show. It's, I'm already interested, and you've not explained anything yeah. about it to me. Well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, you've been in television a long time, John. You know that a good title can be enough to take a show a very, very long way indeed. That is true. If you want more of John, head to your local charity shop and see if they have the Smurfs on DVD. Let's move to November now when I was joined by Chris Addison and Alice Fraser and the talk of the town was Elon Musk. Well, Twitter news now and... um... (laughs) 
Yes, uh, Twitter, for those of you who not heard of it, uh, the 21st century equivalent of standing in the middle of a roundabout with your trousers around your ankles, sc <laughs> screaming at traffic and rubbing radioactive paint on your crotch, has been, <laughs> has been bought by Elon Musk. Now, Alice, you for many years have, uh, have kept uh, Bugle listeners informed uh, of the, uh, all the going, comings and goings in Elon Musk's life and brain. What the f*** is going on with him now? Andy, I, as you know, am mesmerised by Elon Musk. E e Elon Musk, a baby's idea of a grown-up. You know, all <laughs> of the money and resources in the world, and he's using it to send cars to space like the wank fantasy of nerds that wish they were brave enough to be assholes. And he has now bought Twitter. And he's throwing his weight around, he's brought in other programmers, he's decided that he wants to revolutionise Twitter by making it more Twitter than it's ever been. Uh, the problem here, Andy, is, among many other things, is he's suggesting that uh, verified users need to pay uh, to maintain their verified user status. Uh, that in order to have a premium Twitter experience, you're going to have to pay money. And this is, is the core issue at the heart of this purchase of Twitter, is the relentless urge to be a landlord. Um, if you want to make a premium Twitter, what you need to do is ruin the general experience of Twitter to such a degree that people will pay to be out of it. It's the same thing that leads to airport lounges. It's the same thing that leads to <laughs> VIP clubs. Uh, if the airport is fine, you have no need for a lounge. What counts as innovation for a billionaire is making the world like it is for them all the time, uh, but only for people like them. Uh, I, <laughs> He's bringing in coders from all his other programs uh, to deal with the Twitter code. And the problem is that uh, Twitter is not a tech product. Twitter is a nightclub. Twitter is a people product. There's no innovative code in Twitter. Twitter is selling the addiction of Twitter of people like uh, Stephen King and Elon Musk back to themselves. There's no innovative moderation algorithm. And if there were, Elon would already be deconstructing it in the name of this glowing ideal of absolute unregulated free speech, the equivalent in sophistication to a 19-year-old libertarian. Uh, this free speech idea has been ruthlessly proven to lead nowhere good by places that already exist on the internet, like 4chan. <laughs> the moment he bought it, slurs went up uh, on the platform, which you always know is a good sign. You know that's a good sign that you're doing the right thing. The moment you buy a platform, people start using the N-word more. <laughs> um, it is kind of extraordinary. Is he, bought, he bought it for a huge amount of money. He said he wasn't going to buy it, then he was kind of, kind of trapped into buying it. Since he took it over, um, he told all the coders to print out their last 30 days of coding, then told them to shred their printouts, then sacked a load of them. He wandered through his office carrying a sink, and he's got rid of half of his senior executives. So basically, what we have with Elon Musk is someone who, had he been born 2,000 years before he was, would have ended his life with his penis in a horse being hacked to death by his bodyguard. Ancient Rome... <laughs> Ancient Rome is missing an emperor. That is essentially what has happened. He did say this, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. And looking at the, the state of free speech around the world, it might be the bedrock of a functioning democracy, but that bedrock is radioactive and it is poisoning democracy from within. Um, I feel like he was wandering around, uh, well, he was wandering around the halls of Twitter with the sink so that he could just look over people's shoulders and say, I have a sinking feeling. Um, and then they have to laugh because he's the boss. But he, he literally, didn't he post um, let that sink in yes. as he went into Twitter? Yeah. 
Twitter is sort of now run by the least funny person on Twitter. <laughs> and that is a hotly contested title. nightmare. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No matter what he does, I just, whenever I see him, I don't see the world's richest man. I just, I can't help thinking, do you wash your face in a deep fat fryer? What's going on there? <laughs> he, I mean, okay, let's not make fun of how he looks. He does look like the face of a man in a police sketch of a man. But I think the core issue is that he's selling himself as a representative of the war between engineers and the artistic class, the artistic class being people who have taste and, and good jokes, and the engineering class are the people who actually get things done. The problem being uh, that he does not get things done. What he does uh, is he goes around and he bloviates with lots of money until other people get things done for him. Uh, apparently, he's a great engineer. I, I await one of his uh, pig, Neuralink pigs, to show me that he is. <laughs> it's a spectacular fall from grace, though, isn't it, really? If you think about Elon Musk, say, three years ago, when all we really knew was that he liked the idea of making Tesla open source and he was going to build all these, these batteries that he would explain how he was doing it and anyone could do it and this would solve the energy crisis and so on. That was when he was at his absolute... To go from that level of cool... Just stop. Somebody should have just said to him at that point, stop. Stop. Nothing you say from this point, nothing is going to better the things that you've already said. And it has just been a phenomenal ride without breaks downhill ever since that point. Yes, he lost, he lost his traction somewhere between uh, Tesla's going to solve the climate crisis and we can make it uh, make fart noises instead of horn sounds when you Brilliant. press the beeping button. There have been some other new social media platforms launched to try and uh, uh, re well, replace uh, Twitter. Uh, Bark Void. Uh, where no one is allowed any followers, but they can just uh, bark their vo bile into a vacuum of nothingness. I think that might be... That's the logical end point of social media, I think. Um, bile ducts, which automatically generates insults, but then shares them anonymously equally amongst all users. So everyone gets abused the same amount. I think that's democracy in action. And spubicle, uh, which is only insults that would in previous times have been scrawled over the walls of a toilet cubicle. So... Um, <laughs> now let us play you out with a clip from Bugle 10, our first ever Christmas, where John Oliver and I revealed our Christmas wish lists. Find more classic clips on our Top Stories podcast with new clips from our archive every day. Do have a happy new year. We'll be back in 2023. Because I have a samurai sword, but it is for private use in my own personal blood grudges. <laughs> I have to avenge the death of my ancestors, Andy. They're all dead. I suspect foul play. All of them are dead. I will track down the perpetrator. Further and further back in my family tree, Andy, there's more and more corpses. I will have my vengeance. What, what would you like for Christmas, John? I'd like a samurai sword. <laughs> I thought you said you had one. I told you that you can't have too many. I want because an imitation samurai sword because I love breaking the law in a petty <laughs> way. I guess they're like golf clubs, though. They're all slightly different, aren't they? And you, although you're not allowed... Yeah. I think the real samurais aren't allowed more than 13 samurai swords in their bag at any one time. Yeah, and one of them has to be a very lofted sword as well. <laughs> Personally, these are the things on my Christmas list. I would like a giant working replica of Nadia Comaneci, but it's got to be at least 30 foot tall. Uh, I'll bear that in mind. I'd also like the power of life and death over the people of the Northern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. I'd like the world's largest watermelon. I would like okay. pancreatitis. I'd like my old bin back from the people at 53. <laughs> oh, stop! 
Stop settling scores. I'd like the Queen Mother back from the dead. Oh, yeah, true. We all want that. We, yeah. we all want that. Taken from us all so tragically early, Andy. Other things I want, a ride on a dolphin, a trolley dash around the British Museum, a game of table tennis with Hillary Clinton, a Portuguese accent... Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.